The Security Council will now begin its consideration of item two of the agenda. I call now on the distinguished Secretary of State of the United States of America, His Excellency, Mr. Colin Powell. Thank you, Mr. President. It's six weeks before Allied forces invade Iraq, and Bob Drogan, a journalist for the Los Angeles Times, is in the chamber of the UN Security Council in New York. All eyes are on Colin Powell, the US Secretary of State, as he delivers an urgent message. I think the whole world was watching this. I mean, this was the Bush administration trying to convince the world that there was a case to be made for starting a new war. He was there to prove that an invasion of Iraq was imperative. Colin Powell was the most credible as the Secretary of State and as an international statesman and as a former general, was the most credible member of the George W. Bush administration um, to make that case. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. President, Mr. Secretary General, distinguished colleagues, I would like to begin by expressing my thanks for the special effort that each of you made to be here today. He said, first, biological weapons. He made clear that that was the linchpin for everything else. Let me now turn to those deadly weapons programs and describe why they are real and present dangers to the region and to the world. First, biological weapons. And then he said, we have an eyewitness, and he described the seven trucks. Mobile production facilities used to make biological agents. We have first-hand descriptions of biological weapons factories on wheels and on rails. And he held up a vial of something white. Less than a teaspoon of dry anthrax, a little bit about this amount. This is just about the amount of a teaspoon. Anthrax, a nightmarish vision. Iraq declared 8,500 liters of anthrax. If concentrated into this dry form, this amount would be enough to fill tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of teaspoons. And it was a dramatic presentation. He was a powerful speaker. The entire world was watching this. You know, it was seen as one of those rare times when a speech can turn the world upside down, and it seems like it did. And I know he's regretted it ever since. That speech became, in effect, the final word on the American and British case for war. A month later, the troops rolled into Baghdad. Bob Drogan became a war reporter, caught up in the chaos and confusion of those first few months. But a year later, he was back in Washington, when he heard that George Tenet, the director of the CIA, was going to speak about the war. Somewhere in the course of that speech, he said, we have not yet gained access to or been able to speak to the chief source of the information on the biological weapons laboratories. The seven trucks so central to the case for war. I knew that the biological weapons laboratories were the key to their whole case. And here he had just admitted to us they had not spoken to the source of the information that they had used to make this case. I don't know that anyone else in the audience heard it with the same alarm that I did, but I went back to um, my office and said, we have to look at this. And it became something of an obsession for me to try and understand how this 
obscure individual, how his story, which was never proven, never vetted, never confirmed, had become so critical an element to so many governments that we wound up in a catastrophic war. I'm David Dimbleby, and from something else, this is The Fault Line, Bush, Blair, and Iraq. Last time we heard from the inspectors who led the hunt for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. From their evidence, it was clear that Saddam did have WMD in the 1980s and on into the 90s. But then, when the weapons inspectors left Iraq in 1998... Lights went out in Iraq. The CIA had no clue what was going on. They had become totally reliant upon the inspectors. Same with the British, the same with the Israelis, the same with everybody. We were the eyes of the world in Iraq. And when the inspectors left in December 1998, they literally had to start from scratch trying to rebuild agent networks, rebuild capabilities, and they were never able to rebuild those. The best intelligence, according to the Secret Services, is human intelligence, information on the ground that comes from sources. But what if there is no human intelligence? In this episode, I'm going to explore how the Bush administration built its public case for war and the mysterious source that ended up right at the heart of this battle for the truth. To understand where the source came from, we need to go back to the journalists at the Knight Ridder News Organization in Washington, D.C. We heard from reporter Warren Strobel in episode three, but this part of the story centers on his colleague, this is Jonathan Landay. Uh, I was the national security and defense correspondent for Knight Ritter during the run-up to the invasion and war in Iraq. Jonathan joined the team a bit later than Warren. The first time I met him, I thought he was a flaming, arrogant asshole. <laughs> He's kind of much quieter than I am. I'm kind of the loud one. He's the quiet one. He can just come off as like uh, the center. He thinks he's the center of the universe. And it's just like, you know, how some people present to the world. And, and my nickname, actually, I was given a nickname in Bosnia. They called me uh, Radio Landa. I shouldn't even be saying this. I love you, Jonathan. I really do. You're my, one of my best buddies. But it was just a first impression. As we heard in episode three, straight after September the 11th, they got a curious tip-off from a source at the State Department. They heard that although in public the administration was talking about al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, in private they were turning their attention towards Saddam Hussein and Iraq. And as Jonathan starts work after 9-11, he begins getting messages, phone calls suggesting a link between al-Qaeda and Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. We started hearing suggestions from senior officials that, that Saddam Hussein uh, could give chemical or biological or even nuclear weapons to this group for use against the United States. They were hearing that Saddam not only had weapons of mass destruction, but that he was going to give them to Al-Qaeda to use against the US. Why would a dictator like Saddam Hussein give the crown jewels of his military power to a group that could then turn around and use them against him. 
It didn't seem to make sense to them, so Jonathan and Warren set out to discover where these stories were coming from. And by talking to their sources in Washington, they traced them back to one person, an Iraqi exile called Ahmed Chalabi. Okay, Ahmed Chalabi, he was a Iraqi exile. I believe he had grown up in a fairly wealthy landowning family in or around Baghdad. Chalabi's family were part of the Iraqi elite. And then in the 1950s, the military overthrew King Faisal II and Chalabi had to leave Iraq. He spent time in Jordan where he worked as a banker. And at some point he left after being accused of fraud. He moved to London, living in a grand apartment in Mayfair. And it was in London that he started to shed the skin of banking and became a politician the leader of a movement of Iraqi exiles determined to get rid of Saddam Hussein and to replace him with themselves. To help the Iraqi opposition overthrow Saddam, Saddam will continue to maintain weapons of mass destruction in addition to uh, continue to kill the Iraqi people. After the first Gulf War, Chalabi formed the grandly named Iraqi National Congress, which became the political center of the movement and a focal point for neoconservatives in Washington who shared his views. We have every intention of creating a coalition, provisional government on Iraqi territory. You know, he's a very smart guy, was. Chalabi died a couple of years ago. He was very eloquent, very persuasive, and he went around to the halls of Congress. He found powerful backers in Washington, including people like Richard Perot, um, to some extent Dick Cheney, Wolfowitz, and leading U.S. senators and congressmen. In the 90s, Chalabi was involved in an attempt by the CIA to overthrow Saddam. It was a disaster and left 1,500 dead. But then, after 9-11, when the talk behind closed doors in the US was turning to Iraq, Chalabi realized he could offer something valuable to the administration, something that would help them make a case for the war against Saddam. What he had to offer were defectors, people who'd fled Iraq and Saddam's regime. They came to him, told him their stories, and he passed them on to his neocon friends in Washington and to the major newspapers. And so stories started turning up in papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Stories that Saddam was renovating storage facilities for chemical, biological and even nuclear weapons. That Russian virologists had sold a particularly virulent strain of smallpox to the Iraqi government. Even that Saddam's government had met with Osama bin Laden. Like the big newspapers, the Knight Ridder journalists were getting these same tips. But instead of believing them outright, they started investigating whether they were true. And they were suspicious because... Chalabi had a, a, a huge interest in having the United States invade because the, the intention was the United States could go in and somehow sort of just chop off this top level of Saddam Hussein's regime and replace it with Ahmad Chalabi and his people. They knew how much he had to gain from an invasion of Iraq. 
And the Knight Ridder team are not just suspicious about Chalabi, they're also suspicious about his network of defectors. So defectors can be a useful source of information, but you have to remember, I think, that they want to get resettled in the United States or wherever they're defecting to. They want to get a job. They want to get money. They want their families taken care of. So Lande doesn't take these tips at face value. Instead, he starts hunting through the evidence. A lot of that based on open records that the UN inspectors had themselves compiled and put online and were there for anybody who wanted to explore them. And what those records showed was that because of the inspections, it would have been very difficult for Saddam to rebuild his weapons program as the defectors were suggesting. How could he have possibly reconstituted these programs while his country was the subject of, at that point, the strongest UN WMD inspection regime on the ground with the help of American spy satellites and spy plane overflights and communications monitoring. How is it possible that he could have built the infrastructure he needed while he was under a microscope? That again made no sense whatsoever. And so he realized each of these defectors was not just problematic, but was providing bogus information directly to the White House and the Pentagon. What Jonathan Lande discovered was what amounted to a separate channel of intelligence. Intelligence is usually directed by the CIA, a civilian agency that's separate from any policy department or from the White House. But Chalabi and his team of defectors were essentially bypassing the CIA and going direct to the White House and the Pentagon. Through um, an office known as the Office of Special Plans. The Office of Special Plans was a secret intelligence unit set up within the Pentagon and working directly with Chalabi. Chalabi would send information from his defectors to the office, and at the same time, he'd brief the media. And so it was kind of like this circular process where they'd tell the administration something, and then the administration would see the same stuff pop up in newspapers and go, aha, see? And, and yet it was all coming from the same bogus source. Jonathan was writing story after story, trying to rebut the intelligence that was churned out in the mainstream press. We were disclosing essentially what was a parallel intelligence and policymaking arm uh, of the government, deep inside the government, that was manipulating intelligence and information to try and gin up public support for an invasion. There was a lot at stake here. The problem for Knight Ridder was this was all ending up in the New York Times and the Washington Post, powerful newspapers. Their stories, published in smaller papers around the country, were largely being ignored. Did you ever have doubts, though, about your reporting? That's my producer, Joe Sykes. Um, what I had doubts about was why, what, what was bothered me was why are we the only ones who are doing this? You know, why isn't anyone else doing what we're doing? Um, and I would wake up at night after, you know, publishing our latest, going, you know, are we right? How come no one else is saying what we're saying? I can only surmise a couple of things. One, we had had 
It was a time of, you know, quote unquote, national unity. United We Stand was a bumper sticker saw all over the United States. Who was going to question the president of a country that had suffered the worst terrorism attack on its soil? We had stacks of emails to that point. Landay's editor, John Walcott, remembers this as well. You know, we were called traitors, but I, I think there were some people who thought it perhaps was unpatriotic to challenge the administration in the wake of that attack. And then there was an assumption about Saddam Hussein. Of course, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Of course, who, who, who didn't doubt that? Of course he did. Uh, and it infected the U.S. journalistic community. And the U.S. journalistic community was guilty of as big a failure on this as the intelligence community was. Essentially, they're not reporting. They're doing stenography. They're reporting what they're told by those higher-level officials in the vice president's office and in the Department of Defense, all of whom are advocates of ousting Saddam. All this helped create a public narrative of a dangerous and aggressive Iraqi dictator. At one point, it even put Warren at odds with his family. There was a barbecue at my house. Pretty sure Walcott and his wife were president, Landay and his then-wife were president, I and my then-wife were president. Also, my mom, my dad, and there was a few moments where they really kind of questioned what we were doing. Of course, not journalism. So just like it kind of increased the sense of isolation that your own family doesn't back you up. The rest of the news media is not going where you're going. The administration's ignoring you. Uh, you're getting hate mail from people saying you're not patriotic and you're in league with the terrorists. It was a very lonely period there for a while. But Lande and Strobel's editor, John Walcott, wasn't planning to back down. One day, the newsroom was watching the vice president, Dick Cheney, on television, making a rousing speech about how Saddam was a dangerous madman with nuclear weapons. But we now know that Saddam has resumed his efforts to acquire nuclear weapons. Among other sources, we've gotten this from first-hand testimony from defectors. I told the newsroom, we don't write for people who send other people's kids to war. We write for people whose kids get sent to war. The thing is that Knight Ridder's newspapers were dotted all around the country, far away from the east and west coasts. And they were read by a very different audience. The newspapers Knight Ridder served were disproportionately around military communities, major American military bases. We were writing for the little paper the, in Albany, Georgia, adjacent to Fort Benning, the home of the United States Infantry, for the paper in Tacoma, Washington, adjacent to Fort Lewis, for the people at Fort Riley near Kansas City, the, the people at Fort Hood, not too far from Fort Worth. That's who we were writing for. We were not writing for Richard Cheney or Donald Rumsfeld or George W. Bush. You know, we were writing for those people and for their wives and for their husbands and for their children. Uh, if they were being asked to go to war, there better be a damn good reason the administration had for asking them to do that. And the evidence we'd seen didn't hold up. And then comes a story that feels different. A story from a defector, but one who doesn't seem to be associated with Ahmed Shalabi. And this defector has a story that appears to make sense, even clinch the case that Saddam does still have weapons of mass destruction. 
That story after this short break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. As we heard in the last episode, when UN weapons inspectors left Iraq in 1998, they were pretty certain they could account for most of Saddam's weapons program. But there was a loose end. We now have these documents, and we're able to go through these documents in great detail. That's weapons inspector Scott Ritter, and he's talking about those files that were found on the chicken farm in Iraq that helped reveal that Saddam did once have a biological weapons program. An anthrax capability, a botulinum toxin capability. They were pursuing rice and they were pursuing some other capabilities. Serious weaponry. Weaponry that could kill hundreds of thousands within hours. Uh, and then we inspect the physical infrastructure that's identified in this. And two things emerge. One... There is no physical infrastructure left for this program. No laboratories, it's all more or less been destroyed, and... Two, we can't account for everything. They haven't found all the chemicals that were listed in the files, the chemicals needed to make the weapons, and so they ask themselves... What could the Iraqis do with this that would give them a viable WMD capability? And one of the things that we came up with was mobile labs. We said, what if they built a fermentation capability on the back of a truck? This seemed a simple answer to a problem that the Iraqis certainly had because the inspectors had become very skilled at finding fixed facilities, even if they were well disguised. So if the Iraqis had a fixed facility, over time, if it was a biological facility, it would give off certain indicators that would get detected and that would be turned into a target and fed to the inspectors and then we would kick down the door and we'd be on them. And so the way you avoid that is to go mobile. 
put your laboratory on wheels. Scott did a drawing of what he imagined this would look like, a big truck with equipment inside for making biological weapons. And we actually carried out inspections for this. Scott and his team started going around the country looking for these trucks. One place which they took a particular interest in was an ice cream factory. We had a piece of intelligence from the Israelis that said that a uh, ice cream factory was being used as a cover for mobile trucks. And so we said, well, maybe this, this is where the mobile labs are. But what did they find in the ice cream factory? A choice of vanilla, strawberry or chocolate, but no anthrax, no toxins, no deadly Ebola virus. For Scott, though, with his long experience of dealing with the Iraqi regime, the fact that he couldn't find the thing didn't mean it wasn't there. Once you postulate the existence of something, and then you do an inspection that doesn't find it, what is the conclusion? That it doesn't exist, or that the Iraqis are just good at hiding it? The answer was always that the Iraqis were good at hiding it, and so they kept looking. And then one of the heads of the inspection program had an idea. Uh, he had relationships with a guy named Ahmed Chalabi, who ran the Iraqi National Congress. Yes, the same Ahmed Chalabi. And Chalabi was the guy back in 94, 95, working with the CIA to overthrow Saddam. He had fallen out with the CIA because he's pretty much a dishonest character. But he had fallen into a politically powerful group of neoconservatives in Washington, D.C. And he, his claim to fame was that he had sources of intelligence operating inside Iraq that could help us. So Scott's boss says to Scott, go and talk to Chalabi. Find out what he knows. Uh, open up a, a line of communication. And, and actually in January of 1998, I flew to London and met with Chalabi in his Mayfair apartment along with his head of intelligence. So... He's sitting in this big, plush Mayfair apartment with large Iraqi tapestries on the wall, and he's trying to find out from Chalabi what intelligence he actually has. In the middle of it, he said, what do you need to know? Now, this is where I made one of the biggest mistakes I, I've ever made as an inspector. As an intelligence officer, you never tell people what you're looking for, what you don't know, et cetera, because you just identified your gaps in collection. What the appropriate response is, what, what I know or don't know isn't relevant. I need to know what you know. But instead, I said, you know, one of the problems we're looking for is a, is a mobile lab. Mobile biological lab. Do you have any intelligence on that? And he said, well, we'll get back to you. A few months after that conversation between Scott Ritter and Chalabi, a new Iraqi defector turns up. His name is Rafid Ahmed Alwan Al-Janabi. He's a, an Iraqi chemical engineer who grew up in Baghdad, one of the suburbs of Baghdad. That's Bob Drogan again, the journalist we heard from at the beginning of this episode. And fled the country in 1999, wound up in Germany, wound up in the Munich area, and Germany was very welcoming, or at least forgiving, of refugees. Especially from Saddam Hussein's Iraq. They were under dreadful sanctions, so the economy was a, a sort of a gangster economy. You had a dictator at the top who ruled by fear and torture, and, and there were any number of reasons you'd want to get out of there. So Rafid ends up in this refugee camp in Germany. 
a refugee camp. It was actually a former Nazi police post. And after he's been there a couple of months, a team from the German Secret Service arrive. They regularly visit the camp to see if any of the Iraqi defectors have useful information. Usually they have little more to give than a lurid description of the inside of a prison cell or a torture chamber. But they're interested in Rafid because on his file it says he worked as a chemical engineer. He just might know something about Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. And he starts telling them a story. About uh, what he claimed he had done and seen and heard and so on. And the story goes something like this. He told them he'd left Iraq because he was terrified of Saddam. Normal story for any defector. He told them he was frightened of the prison-like conditions in the refugee camp. Again, check, nothing out of the ordinary here. And then he said something else. He claimed he had worked at a place called Jerf al-Nadaf outside of Baghdad and that he had been the director there of a program. A program started by Saddam Hussein. A program that built these trucks. Trucks that had been created with a special purpose. To ferment anthrax and smallpox and, you know, various diseases and germs and so on. In other words, biological weapons. Rafid painted a nightmare vision of how Saddam Hussein was not just building a terrifying program of germ warfare, but was doing it on trucks that could be moved around. And of course the German Secret Service is interested. This looks like seriously useful information, confirming what they've already heard from other sources. So they keep coming back and Rafid keeps telling them more about the trucks and the German intelligence agency trust him. You know, he did not come out claiming that he wanted to take down Saddam or that he had any political motivation at all. He wanted a Mercedes. He wanted German citizenship. You know, he wanted a, a soft life in Germany. He wanted, he wanted what we all want. You know, he wanted a, a life out of, out of a dictatorship. Why wouldn't he? And that's what he got. In return for information, they put him into the witness protection program and gave him a new life. And every time they talked to him, he'd give them more details. As he would get pressed on details, he would say one thing one day, and a few days later he would change his story. He would say, oh, I don't remember that, or, oh, that's not, did I say that? Oh, maybe it was this, what, and so on. And, and he did that over and over again. And curiously, for the German intelligence officers, this only makes his story more credible. In the topsy-turvy sort of world of intelligence, especially in a situation like that where they're desperately trying to get information about a secret program and they're paying a lot of money for it and they're offering all kinds of inducements for it. And so people are coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, you know, I saw Saddam do this and I'm, you know, I heard this and I saw that. Here you have a guy who has a story and he keeps sort of backing away from it. And ironically, it gave him greater credibility in the intelligence community. They said, ah, he's not lying to us. See, he's telling the truth. He's not exaggerating. And he's kept in the protection program in Germany. His reports go into the system, this international system of shared information between Western intelligence agencies. Anyway, his reports went into the system and um, didn't get a great deal of traction until 9-11 happened. And then, at least in Washington, they were sort of pulled out of the safe and, and viewed with a different lens because there was a much greater fear after 9-11, fear of biological weapons attacks, biological agents. 
And here's this file sitting in the computer system with information from someone who was a senior engineer running Saddam's top-secret, hidden, biological weapons program. It all fits. This is the CIA's man. Forget the stories from Chalabi's trained defectors. This man can't be one of them. He's incarcerated in Germany. This is the story. It fits. It fits with the idea that the Iraqis are always trying to hide things and will go to extreme lengths to do so. That they'll build mobile weapon labs in which they can make nightmarish diseases. This is their man. And so they get this little file from the German Secret Service and they give this man a name, a code name. All human intelligence sources get a code name. It's such a wonderful code name that he was given and just utterly by accident. Apparently Ball was the name that was being used at the time for weapons of mass destruction. And there had been a snowball and a, you know, a, I don't, you know, a, whatever, a, a fastball. But this guy got a different name. He became Curveball, which, you know, was a wonderful metaphor. And Curveball would become central to the case that George Bush and Tony Blair would make for war in Iraq. In particular, the UN inspection regime discovered that Iraq was trying to acquire mobile biological weapons facilities, which of course are easier to conceal. Present intelligence confirms that they have now got such facilities. That's next time on The Fault Line. The Fault Line is a something else production. It's presented by me, David Dimbleby. Joe Sykes is the producer, with additional production from Jade Scott. Mixing and sound design comes from Evan Arnett at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. And thank you to Dasha Lisitsina, Ali Adlington, Mira Sharma, Russell Finch, Carly Maley, Aaron Baker, Chris Blackley, Emma Lansdowne, Mark Rivers, and Steve Ackerman. And also thanks to the George W. Bush Presidential Library for the use of their archive.